listen to Vintage House on Wednesdays at 10 p.m. on WNUR 89.3 FM, WNUR.org, Facebook Live, and VintageHouseShow.com. Welcome to the Vintage House Show. The Vintage House Show celebrates the lives and careers of house music pioneers. The Vintage House Show can be found at VintageHouseShow.com and is powered by the Modern Dance Music Research and Archiving Foundation, the only repository in the United States dedicated solely to preserving and honoring house and dance music genres. Visit us at dancemusicfoundation.us. Hey, it's Lori Branch with another episode of Vintage House. Today's guest is my friend and DJ sister, Darlene Jackson, also known as DJ Lady D. A house music DJ since the mid-90s, Lady D became part of a DJ collective known as Super Jane. This group was made up of four talented women and was one of the first all-female DJ collectives to tour internationally and to produce house music tracks. Lady D is also a community leader working as an educator, advocate, and activist. Today, Lady D, along with my co-host Lauren Lowry, discuss the civil unrest following the murder of George Floyd and how various communities have been left to cope with the aftermath. She also breaks down the mystique of female DJs in a field historically dominated by men and what the future holds for her as a DJ, producer, and conscientious promoter of women DJs as headliners. We are live, so hey, 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 hey. Welcome everybody to our Vintage House show. Pre, uh, during COVID, during crisis, doing everything, we're bringing you the show live. We're in a virtual space, which I'm honestly starting to like a little bit more than a studio. I have to. Now, I'm anxious to get back in the studio so I can touch people, but um, I feel like this is kind of a cool space. Lauren, what do you think? Man, anything to avoid that drive to Evanston. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen. We're thrilled to welcome our guest for the day, Darlene Lady D. Jackson, as she puts there. We call her DJ Lady D. She's in the house. What's up? What's up? What's up? And we have a whole lot to, to cover tonight, ladies. Um, I'm, I'm really happy to be with the two of you because you really are two of the smartest people that I know. Um, you, you really are. Like, first of all, Lauren, you know, you're from the hood, so, you know, a lot of smart people came out of the DJ Light Lady Jesus was dropped from heaven into my life. And and I've known of her for many years, and she was on the show last night. Uh, but honestly, I think that's where we really started to get to know each other when we did the event with Micah Salkine in uh, Providence, where we actually got sat down and, you know, had lunch. And, you know, just got to know her. And you're just such a delight, and I really appreciate all that you bring to this community. Um, we're going to talk serious stuff tonight, though. So... If you're watching, you are welcome to join our conversation. We're going to hear about um, DJ Lady D's start in this business. 25 years in the game this year? 25. Wow. Man. And, and you, look, you look like you're 25, so how does that work? <laughs> Benjamin Burton Syndrome. <laughs> House music keeps you young. I know, I'm in the late bloomers. So. Girl, better late than never, right? <laughs> It's okay. We all bloom in our own time. Yeah. But uh, we're, we're going to have a great conversation about that era. So that time frame, the 90s, 2000s, to what happened with what we're calling the third generation 
of like house music thinking first folks around 70s 80s late 80s and then 90s was kind of a new group that was ushering in a new sound that's right i i think that um it was instrumental for you know certain people to really carry the house uh-huh. the message of house and the spirit of house along because we got hit in so many different ways so i'll definitely you know i'll expand upon that later but that that we I always feel like we're probably most like y'all are the, like the beginning the origin story and y'all really set it off like that fuse that spark and then you know it, it just spread and then we picked up the torch and ran with it and now we're all right. together. I think you're right on the money with that. Um, I know Lauren would, would take exception with the y'all part because I think you guys are around the same age. She's like, no, nah, I was with you. But I don't know, Lauren, you're kind of second generation. Now, what do you think? I'm 21, and so I anyway. learned about all this. <laughs> so, all right, listen up, everybody. Thanks for watching. I hope if you are watching that you're going to share this broadcast with your friends. If you could just press share and, and do a virtual party for us, we would really appreciate it um, because we're gonna have some serious talk before we get to the music because the, the music is how we're gonna solve this problem. I asked the question earlier, you know, what's the house music community to do? A lot of people already responded and that is keep going. So, hey, Linda Red, what's up? Uh, she said, what's up, Lady D? Thanks for tuning in, Linda. Um, and, and I wanna start um, by talking about sister who's been tearing up the airwaves uh, with the most profound video that I have seen in, in a really long time. I, I apologize, so I wrote her name down and I can't remember it. Um, but if you know who I'm talking about, uh, Alan, you posted this, uh, the message that then uh, immediately afterwards, I saw that it was, it was kind of going viral all over the place. Uh, so I want to start with that. And her message was so important. She was on John Oliver. John Oliver posted it to his millions of viewers. So I, sus- I expect that we will see her on the circuit. So if you know her name, forgive me, go ahead and post it so that we can um, properly recognize her contributions. But the point of what she was saying is that, you know, she was speaking to a lot of different groups. She was speaking to middle class black people, wealthy black people. That's how she started it. And, you know, we could talk about what wealth means. But her message was, you know, this is, you can't, like, you can't like shame people in this movement because it is a movement, it's a revolution. And whenever you have a revolution, you have these elements that always come up. I learned so much from that. Lady D, Lauren, have, have you seen it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I was trying to find her name too because I saw it yesterday and um, mm-hmm. somebody, some influencer, some big actor, somebody had posted it on um, on Instagram and I, I, found, I found it that way. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, she said a word and I, and I actually agreed with everything she had to say. Um, I definitely get the sentiment of some people, but the thing that, that the first poignant thing that I thought she said had to do with there's three distinct people involved in what happened, right? So you had the peaceful protesters, mm-hmm. you had rioters, and then you had looters. And so a lot of people haven't taken the time to make that distinction, but that is something that I thought about too. I said, how can you be mad at, at looters? Because these are people who have been left behind. They, they have nothing, and all they're doing is like what she said was they're climbing through glass to get mm-hmm. to that they never had access to. 
So I me feel like that was a that is a question of access, and how can we be mad about that? And I I have to actually look at I always look at myself when it comes mm-hmm. to some of society else. Well, what did I do? What's my responsibility in this? Is there a part where I can take some ownership or you know accept responsibility for some of what's going on? Right. And and it's not to say that I haven't done anything throughout my life. I feel like I've definitely done my share of volunteerism and mentorship. Could I have done more? I always say yes, I could do more. I always think that. So yes. I think, you know, if somebody including, I think it's probably because, you know, how can I sit up here and have nice things and not and and not feel somehow responsible right. for people who don't have nice things. And I and and then I can I can look at myself and say, well, there's plenty of people way more than I have, and they feel bad, but I can't help the way I feel. So, um, so I think, yeah, you know, maybe I should have been beyond my own scope of my own family, my own mm-hmm. intermediate kind of you know surroundings, like caring about those things, and then caring about a, a much wider picture, if I could. You know, you can't do everything, and so I'm I'm aware of that as well. But I can't, I still can sympathize or empathize or whatever the case may be with people who don't have enough and who take an opportunity to get more. Um, you know, and it's not going to last. It's a momentary thing. You know, so it's it's something that they that they feel that way. But we haven't worked against the system that makes them feel that way hard enough, nearly hard enough. We've been trying to get our own and we've been very comfortable in the places that we have gotten to. And so in that sense, I say I failed a little bit. So I'll, I'll take some of that. I'll take some. Of yeah. that. I, I, I'm with you a hundred percent. I couldn't help but to look at that video. That message shook me to my core um, because I felt like she's talking to every American, you know, that everybody has some responsibility to do something different than what we've all been doing. You know, I mean, there, I, there's so many, there's so many ways we could break it down. And by the name, her, by the way, her name is Kimberly Jones. So big ups to Kimberly Jones. That sister is making major waves. Um, shout out to you guys who are watching. Thomas P. Spin, Amy Ricketts, thanks for sharing. Uh, Michelle Miller, appreciate you. Um, and Tyrone Mix, appreciate you too, brother. So I, I think that you can't watch it and not be moved by it. And if you haven't seen it, it's called How Can We Win? And it's Kimberly Jones. And as uh, Lady D is saying, she breaks it down in a way that I think every American needs to see this video. Lauren, your thoughts? You know, I've got, I have so many thoughts about, you know, sort of the, the delineation of the, the different people reacting in different ways to what mm-hmm. has happened here. I think, you know, you cannot, it's hard to, I think if we were all more unified, we'd all sort of think in, in different ways about looting, about marching, about protesting in all of our different ways. So we all protest in different ways. I think depending on who we are and, you know, where we come from, we think differently about, you know, the looting part of protesting, right? I mean, I think even if if we had more of a sense of, of we are all community, Mm-hmm. And if you're breaking into something that, of course, is your own community, your own families, whatever that is, maybe we think differently about it. But, uh, you know, Darlene was suggesting that you sort of you blame yourself. 
you know, I blame all of us for not teaching our kids and our families enough history about ourselves, enough black history, enough African history. I think if we knew that, we would, we would bond more. We would recognize that we're all coming from the same place and having the same issues, no matter what the socioeconomic status. Uh, so we would think differently about the ways that we behave if we had more of a sense of family and community. And again, the reason why kids don't know that and they don't grow up knowing that, or we didn't know that and grow up and teach our kids that is because, you know, maybe systems failed us. Maybe our families failed us. I feel like my parents, who were very smart people, very educated people, didn't teach me black history the way it should have been taught. We all should have been marching, but we stopped marching for a little while during our era, correct? And so we should yeah. all have been growing up thinking about this like the kids are today. These seven-year-olds are marching and protesting, great videos. We think yeah. differently about how we're teaching our kids. They're going to expect different things. They're going to know who they are. They're going to respect each other and going to behave differently when it becomes a time to protest. You know, you're 100% right. And I grew up in a very comfortable situation. You know, my, I didn't have the same struggles that my parents had. And I think that our generation, at least my generation, kids who came out of the 60s, 70s, and even the 80s, you know, uh, had parents that were part of another era where there, the struggle was real and you had to fight and those riots and they lived through that. And maybe maybe we, we got a little bit of a disservice because they didn't want us to experience that. And things may have got a little cushy for us. I don't know. I don't, what do you guys think out there? watching i really think that something happened something is missing and and i think our kids are going to be the ones saying why didn't you do anything about this you know how do we, how do we get to this place no why are we back to this place they didn't never name no they never knew it <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is i just saw this i have this this picture in my house of an old uh -huh. ebony magazine the defunct now ebony magazine uh, cover story that said, Black America, where do we go now? That was 1975, right? Yes. So we're doing the same things. We did become a little cushy. We, did, we didn't teach each other and, you know, and, and of course our families to um, mm -hmm. discuss more about our history and how we move forward and how we're flattening and how we're not moving forward. You know, I feel like we, we were in a cushy situation. Not only that, I knew we were in a cushy situation. Okay. When right. President Obama became the president, I was like, this is a great day. But I yeah, think the era of reconstruction coming yes. around because the Europeans had just become fierce and just as evil as possible, right? It's walking around with monkeys on pictures, uh, throwing bananas over the White House, just, you know, threatening. You know, I said, you know, we're going to see an ugly backlash yeah. to that eight years of presidency. And, and I think... A book uh, you you reminded me of Ta-Nehisi Coates a book which I have I started but didn't finish but I'm planning on it. Uh, we were eight years in charge. Yeah. And when people see the title of that book, they immediately assume that he's talking about the Barack Obama president. And when indeed he's not, he's talking about the eight years uh, during Reconstruction when we had leadership that arose out of the black community to have major positions in government. You know state and local and federal government that were affecting policy. And like you said, Lauren, backlash to that rapid ascension of black people was too much for too this much. country to handle. 
Yeah. And, it, and sort of back to what Kimberly Jones was saying and why we can't, you know, how can we win is, you know, this idea that you pull your boots up, by, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can make it. There has been conscious, uh, uh, deliberate attempts, not attempts, there have been, you know, destruction of our community when that has occurred. So has it beat us down to the point where we don't try? You know, I mean, this, there's there's so many questions that are wrapped in there. Kendall Lloyd, um, thanks for watching. Kendall, Kendall said, uh, "Black flight has left our communities vulnerable." Kendall Lloyd, you can watch on WBON here on WBON. Maybe watching too. And congrats on, on your new twins. But what are your thoughts? Uh, so let's let's put it in context. We talk about black flight. Black flight is is what happened when the redlining opened up a little bit. So you had black people middle-class black families like mine leaving Inglewood and moving to Morgan Park. It's just like, you know, the Sydney Poitier, Lorraine Hans movie. You know, you had people who were like, oh, we got a little elbow room, so let's go to some places where we can actually buy property now. The argument, Kendall, and I agree with you uh, to some extent, was that this left our communities bereft of leaders. Of, of different economic echelons for people to look up to, that businesses left with those people, that important figures left with those people. And you left a class of folks, you know, who, who may not have been able to have those influencers. What do you guys think of that, Lady D? I think that that, that is part of it. Um, I think that there were a certain set of circumstances that really made that possible. And I will talk about the influx of uh, a certain three-letter organizations, you know, Pro Intel Pro and Crap, you know, that hit the community really hard at that time. So, um, you know, Crap. Did you say? Okay. Tell me what you said. Three. <laughs> a certain three-letter, a certain three-letter <laughs> organization. <laughs> well, okay. I won't say out loud, but I'm going to say, you know, there there was a. What's the first letter? <laughs> you you can stay with it. How's that? <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Got you down. Yeah, we want to yeah, stay yeah. online. Okay. I, I mean, I don't. I don't think that any. Um, I mean, drugs come into the community somehow, some way, and mm -hmm. um, that that is allowed to happen, or it is an orchestrated event, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so um, there was an orchestrated event for crack. And crack really devastated our communities in the 80s. And mm -hmm. so um, I don't necessarily blame middle class folks saying I need to get out of here because a lot of what happened was um, there were very stable uh, communities and some of the kids that were coming of age got in crack, got into crack. Mm -hmm. And then they had no place to go. They came back home. They were terrorizing their moms and dads. You know, a lot of people had to leave. They were they were terrorizing communities in some ways. Um, they didn't have anything, and they were just you know really. It was hard. It was hard for people to see to deal with, and so they left. You know, so I think that that was a big part of it too. I don't think it was so much that oh now we have money and now redlining is over i think that has something to do with it. like yes we can spread out and we can get a bigger house for you know for uh, our, our money a bigger bank for our buck like in a in the south suburb or something like that yeah, yeah. so, so yeah. you know if you're doing well in the in the 80s like my parents were 
you know, and, and then I started seeing some of my classmates move to Homewood, move to Flossmoor, move to Glenwood. And I thought, you know, maybe we should too, mom. You know, I, I talked to my parents about it too. Like, y'all want to move? Like, you know, I'm thinking we're doing yeah, it. Why not? Everybody's yeah. doing it. My dad said, oh, you know, our house is paid off, so uh, I don't think so. <laughs> so uh, you, but you're bringing up a good point. Is that, you know, there are, there are different points in a black community where people have left. So, I mean, I, I'm sure there's lots of, of, of research on this, but we think about, let's just take Chicago, okay? If we look at Chicago, you have this influx of people in, you know, the turn of the century, kind of the first wave, real wave of immigrants from the South. And these were typically people who were coming to establish themselves in industry, business, avenue, and then they brought up their, their family, you know? And then you had you know, more me mechanisms that uh, the destabilized industry, you know, uh, the, 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 I'm, I'm, now I'm going back to my history books, but the 30s, you know, where the jobs dried up for people in the South because you didn't need them to pick cotton anymore and you didn't need them to do some of the stuff that they did during, you know, post-slavery days and during slavery. And so then you had this whole wave of folks who moved to Chicago, I'm talking about Chicago now, right? Moved all over the country. Right. You know, waves of people looking to escape the horrible violence of the South and because there was opportunity to move. Yeah. They didn't move from white neighborhoods, they moved from black neighborhoods in the black South to black neighborhoods in the black North. In small kitchenettes and, and, and in often overcrowded situations where redlining real and thick. And then that lasted for a few decades until you had some of those, you know, some of the, the, the wonderful lawsuits and the people who were leaders who were able to, you know, uh, pass civil rights and get us some, some freedom. So then you had the 60s and people started moving out of those communities. And then, then you had the 80s. <laughs> the 80s where the black people moved to the south suburbs, the west suburbs, and, and where those restrictions were even looser. And with each one of those iterations, then you had uh, backlash for the people who stayed in those communities. Yeah. Am, 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 I, am I right? You guys are the scholars. I'm just an observer. What, what are your thoughts? I mean, it, it seems like this is something we've lived through time and time again, and maybe, maybe this, and I'm getting to the class issue that my sister Kimberly Jones was talking about. Because I think, what is what is ours to do? Like, we've been having a, a lot of conversations about what white people should be doing right now. What should black people be doing right now? And, and is it related to, you know, those elements? I know that's a lot, so I'll stop. <laughs> well, uh, I, you know, maybe Lauren knows, but I, was, I would say that double whammy, right? So just being more mobile, having the money and resources to be able to do so. You know, crack epidemic, and then babies raising babies, or or grandmamas raising their babies' babies. So, um, and then you you got to even talk about all of the institutional things that were happening, the systemic things that were happening. So, yeah, defunding of education, the Absolutely. closing the schools, you know, divestment from um, you know uh, manufacturing. Uh, you know, sending jobs to Mexico and mm -hmm. um, and then the import of, you know, cheap, uh, you know, goods from uh, other countries. And so we are, we kind of like left manufacturing, you know, trade schools, where did that go? We left people with no sort of alternatives, like you need to go to college or what, you know what I mean? So 
it was a lot of things happening all at once, probably a perfect storm that really set us up for where we are today because you got people, you got people, you know, why do you need organizations and communities? Because they're there for things that the government won't do, right? So we're trying to pull money from private investors, from different, you know, ways to get resources back into communities. Why are we taking these resources from the communities to begin with? Um, right. So, so I'm not saying that organizations shouldn't exist. I'm saying that they are there filling a void, you know, because there's this vacuum that that's left when people pull money out of places where they should be or where they once were. Um, and so, you know, upsprings these organizations. Now, some people have problem with organizations because a lot of them are, you know, do-gooder organizations headed by a lot of, you know, people who are not of the community. And it's a way for them to, you know, what does an ED of an organization make? You know, some of them are making millions. And, and, you, and you go like, well, you're NFP. Why is the ED making so much money? Not for profit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it just depends. I think that, you know, so many things were happening. But maybe, Lauren, you want, might want to say something about it. But I think that, yeah, like what you were saying about the elbow room, that's one thing. You know, a lot of the, like, sort of uh, really concerted effort to keep the communities down mm-hmm. or also just the way that things are built, you know, these systems of oppression that really, you know, they, th- they look like they're helping, but they're really not helping. So um, that, I think, it all plays part. Yeah. Uh, you know, Lauren, I know you're, you're dying to say something. I, I do. Uh, Cedric Rush has asked this question. So what are we supposed to do about it? We are we are going to get to that, Cedric. I thought it was important for us to kind of lay the groundwork. There's a lot going on. It's not just about what white people need to do to black people or when and how they need to. Because if you listen to Kimberly Jones' video, How Can We Win? She's not only talking to white people. She's talking to black people, many of whom have done well and have in many ways uh, maybe maybe it's unintentional, uh, sort of, you know, neglected to do what we need to do to prevent this from happening in our own communities. And I'm not and I'm, and I'm, I'm not talking about anybody else other than myself. That's what I'm talking about. So so how do we look in the mirror, mirror to do that? Lauren, you want to respond? So uh, you know, there's so many. There's a myriad of ideas on how, in general, Black people win and how we continue to invest in our communities. And I've spent a better part of my life and career thinking about uh, how black people desegregate themselves, how black people uh, continue though to uh, to give to community and Mm -hmm. contribute back to community in Mm -hmm. unique ways so that everyone has the opportunity to move forward. I mean, you know, there's, there's, it's really, you know, there's no, there's no easy answer to all these different things. I think people do want to move forward in life. And so if you're going to have a community where at one point, um, you know, like Woodlawn at, at some point in its career before uh, people were, before desegregation, uh, one of my colleagues, a gentleman named Allison Davis, big developer here in Chicago, grew up in, um, grew up in Woodlawn father was the first tenured professor at at University of Chicago, the first black tenured professor in all of the United States, grew us, uh, stayed in Woodlawn because he couldn't go anyplace else as a black person. 
uh, but his next door neighbor was one of the janitors at University of Chicago. His neighbor after that worked at the bank. The neighbor after that was the garbage guy. They all worked together in community beautifully. Kids played together. Economic status did not make a difference. Black people were working and moving together in community. Once we were allowed to move, and by the way, they never moved out of Woodlawn, but once other people were, had the ability to get out, which is what we should do, right, to a certain degree, right? We want to infiltrate some of these areas in which we were not permitted. Infiltrate. <laughs> we have to. Oh, we just move <laughs> you, you have to, you know, I think we, we have to. We want to. That's why people moved yeah. west in the United States. Right? I thought you right. had migrations. People want to get out. But we cannot neglect those other people. And that's when the, the, the family feel, the feeling of community really starts to show itself. Like, how committed are you to making sure that your neighbors are improving in life? And there's some people, you know, sociology suggests that there's some people who, who just believe that they should only stay in one place. They don't believe they should. That's what people say in Chicago their whole lives. Right? They don't think they should move. They don't think they should, they should experience anything else. I, I used to, when I moved to the north side, I was like trying to get friends and family to visit me. This was you know, 20 years ago. And they would be like, it's just too far. I was like, you just drove to Memphis last weekend. You just drove nine hours, 10 hours to Memphis last weekend for a party. But you can't drive 35 minutes to the north side. Anyway, I, I agree with you, I agree. That's no shade, it's just silliness. It's ridiculous, you know, but I think that we, we have to we have to continue to reach back and we have to teach each other to reach back. I mean, this is all new for us. We've only been somewhat freed in this country for 150 well, years. Can I, can I ask you a question, though, about that reaching back? Because I've heard people say that a lot and I just don't know what that means. So and, and, I, and I, I wonder if there's other ways that that people who are no longer in those communities help people in those communities like is it about visibility is it about making a more concerted effort on recruitment and and retention at the place where you work you know is it about you know showing up uh in in other ways in the universities and the colleges and the high schools you know like i i i think that people have it in mind that the way i give back is i got to go back to you know, this community that I used to live in when I was three years old and figure out how to like work in a community organization. And I, I, I almost feel like that's a little bit carpetbaggerish, you know, that it's not, that's not your community. Anymore. These are your people, but that's not your community. You know, there, if you want to help those people, now this is just my thinking, you know, <laughs> find a way to do it in a place where you are, you know, find a way to do it in a place where you are. Get the right people elected. You know, get you know, figure out. I I, I don't know. What What do you think? I'm I'm, I'm crazy. Go ahead. <laughs> it's, there's different ways to activism, right? So yes. some people write the check, right? Some that's what they can do, right? Some people, you know, I was like when I was when my kid was growing up, I was very hands on. I was the mom, you know, at the bake sales. I was the mom going on for field trips. Mm -hmm. I had I had resources that were earmarked for certain things, right? Mm -hmm. And and I could since I had time to be there, I would rather be there physically doing like the sweat equity. Some people work uh, all during the day. I was a DJ, so I worked at night. I could go on those field trips. 
Mm-hmm. The brothers that couldn't go on the field trip, they wrote checks. That was okay too, you know. Because you need checks too. Yes, you need you need both. You need hands on and boots on the ground, and you need resources and the money. And so, whatever you can do, you do do. But for me, going back was, you know, going back to my elementary school and, and talking to the students. Right? Mm-hmm. What are you doing now? What? How did you get that job? What's your career? You know, so just showing them different examples of what life can be. Um, giving back was, you know, volunteering at some of these community organizations as a DJ, like teaching a, a DJ workshop, you know, which to me is really about self-confidence and having self-esteem. Yeah. So all kids that I know have ever met, they all love music. And so just showing them, hey, Here's another layer to that. That was something that I felt was, you know, reaching back. Um, because you don't have to do these things, and lots of people don't. But yeah. people ask me, I usually try to find a way to do it. Because to me, that is the part for me that represents going back and, and giving back. So, so I, want, I want to ask a harder question, um, Lady D and Lauren. A lot of people are saying we need to defund the police. I see, Kendall, you're talking about the slumlord programs need to be revamped. I completely agree, um, because there's still way too many of those. Uh, But this idea of defunding the police, and I know that it it feels like kind of crazy when you first hear that, but when you unpeel it a little bit, what people are talking about is making wiser investments, you know? Than, than what we're making. So $33 million is spent at CPS. According to about a tribute today about the $33 million spent as in a contract with CPS. And wouldn't that be better spent, you know, with social workers, people who are expert, you know, at harm reduction um, and, and um, you know, mental health and behavioral health. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about defund the police? And I'd like to hear from you guys too out there watching. Do we defund the police? Yes. All right. No, I mean, I don't want to, I feel like I'm always going first, but I, I think I think it's unfortunate, you know, um, well, I would say this, it's unfortunate that they call it defund. Because, it's not really. Yes, because that, that has led to a lot of, and I think they should just walk it back and say, what we really meant was, mm-hmm. you know, evaluate, you know, reallocate, and mm-hmm. maybe release some of these mugs from these positions, right? Something like that. Whatever, whatever it really truly is, because to sit there and have to, re, you know, explain it and explain it and explain it over again. No, it doesn't mean no police. It means this. It means that. They're really doing themselves a disservice. So maybe just just say, okay, we jumped out a little too soon with that message. We yeah. this, this is what we really meant. You know, same thing, just different word. Um, I, I wonder if it was a tactic, though, because when, when you hear it, I'm like, we're like, no, can't defund the police. Like, who's, who's going to get the terrorists? You know, I mean, we, we immediately sort of jumped to like, who's going to protect us? Um, but you don't always need somebody to protect you because your son is having a, a schizophrenic episode in the yeah, bathtub. I've never used you know? it in my life. I can't exactly. never, I, I mean, I'm, and, and here's the thing. You, me, we pay their salaries. Yes. So, and we are their bosses. So let's not forget what our role in this is. We don't hold them accountable enough. Okay, so 
uh, the guy that got on the TV and was talking to people, ah, calling us animals and vilifying us. And he was going off, right? Like, if you talk to your boss like that, I wouldn't talk to my boss like that if I had one, you know, that I needed to get things from and who was paying my way. So I don't think that was really well thought out. I don't think that um, I would be, if I messed up, I would come with some contrition and with some humility and, okay, how can I fix this? What can I do? I would be listening more than I'm speaking, okay? So I'm, I'm looking at these fools going, yeah, y'all really do need to be defunded because what you've done is taking the money and taking the power and now you're monsters, okay? Now you have no sense of what it's really like in these communities. You're out here cracking a whip, you know, like this is, this is the police thing is a message from so many years ago, you know, from slave catchers to now. And the, the mentality has grown into this big, big, uh, what they think is uncontrollable thing. But I think what we're gonna see right now is that no, we're about to actually control. We're about to, King Kong is going down, okay? So it's, it, it's over. Like, like, no, because it's too many years of, you know, of the, the uh, unions, the fraternal order, they've gotten really, really, really big and really um, dangerous and they, they threaten people and they make people feel unsafe if they're gonna go against them. And, and that's an unfortunate side effect of when things are out of balance, when things are imbalanced. It's like, nobody wants not any police, maybe, but I, I mean, I, uh, pardon me as a pacifist, the dreams of a utopia that says that we can have a, you know, a perfect world and we can figure these things out on our own. I don't think that I had to use a police ever, ever, not once. But I don't mind paying your salary if you are serving and protecting me. Maybe that is part of it. I, I, I haven't had to use a policeman because somehow in, in the walk of life that I've led up to, to this day, I have been served and protected. And so <laughs> that in that sense, maybe it is a sense of comfort that I'm speaking from where I can, I can actually say, well, you know, I haven't had to use it. Doesn't mean I don't need it. And I'll right. take salary gladly. But when I look at my brethren who are out here dying, I can't have that either. And so we have to fix it. We have, that has to be fixed. And I don't know anybody that shouldn't be agreeing about that. Like I read an article that said, you know, um, white people don't really want police reform because of their inherent fear of, you know, black and brown people that they're gonna be sitting somewhere in a park one day and not feel safe because some black person is around and so they'll allow like the brutality to continue because somewhere in the back of their mind, they think, well, I might need them one day. And so, um, and so playing into that fear really prohibits, you know, really getting to the heart of, we want better policing. Yes. So yes. you can't accept anything. No, you want better policing. I think that would be a better a better tactic, and I and, and I don't have anything against the tactic that's out there. I do think sometimes we have to speak in extremes to find a middle ground. So maybe we start with something that is jarring, like defund the police, and 
And it, I, I, I will admit it, it affected me that way too. I'm like, I'm scared by it, even the sound of it. You know, but once we have a logical conversation about it, then we understand that, you know, what is really mean, 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 meant is reform, better policing, better utilization of mental health and behavioral health for things that just need to be de-escalated and not somebody with a shotgun that's coming to do some damage. You know, police carry a gun. When you call them, that's what they're trying to do. Uh, and, and I want to give a shout out to, to all my, to my brothers who, and sisters who are a part of the police force who are darn good at their job. And I know many of them. And they do serve and they do protect. And Lady D, like you, I have been knock on some wood. There's a lot of metal around. But I've been in a p protected position most of my life where I don't have to call the police. Um, but if you live in a situation where things are more limited, there's poverty, there's lack of education, there's lack of access to services, the police are an essential part of that, that framework, unfortunately. And some of that is because, let's face it, you know, there's some, there is some sadism, you know, in those kind of jobs and people are attracted to places like that who have those tendencies. But uh, I, I won't get too much into that. None of my friends fit that category. I love you all. All y'all who are serving, protecting. Thank you for your service. Trust me. I just love that you said that it was there was sadism involved. I'm like, whoa. They. <laughs> no, I, I've heard this. I've heard this that there are that there. You know, it's not an accident that we see brutality because it is a profession that attracts some brutal people. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. You know, you. You want a job to walk around and carry a gun and be able to do those things. You're going to attract some people for for whom that is an attraction. I'll just put it that way. None of the people I know, of course. So, uh, Kendall Lloyd, black clubs need to make a comeback. They work. Come out on the front porch. I agree. My wife, let me tell you what my wife did yesterday. She's a funny lady. I said... <laughs> Well, nobody calling you Karen, baby, so just be careful, okay? So <laughs> she walks over. We got some neighbors who are, like, firing bombs, you know, like those really, really loud bombs, and they're doing it every night. Like in ladies? I, whatever they are, they're really scary. Okay. And, and everybody's looking out the window, and they're like, what is going on? <laughs> and finally, she had enough, because we were sitting on our porch saying hi to people as they go by. And she's like, I'm going to find the culprits. And she walked down and walked around, and she found out where it was coming from, and she confronted them very nicely. You know, and they were like, yeah, whatever. We're not backing down. We're going to continue to do this. And she's like, you are scaring a lot of people. This is a really bad time to be shooting off fireworks, and especially those really explosively loud ones. Yeah. And they, they didn't have any sympathy for what she was saying. Mm. And, you know, she's psychologically minded, and so she's able to kind of talk them down. And, you know, like you need somebody like her on the course where she was able to reason with these people and say, look, you know, my child is really frightened by this. Um, if you, if nothing else, can you just do it, you know, like not do it for the kids and not do it during this time. It's really a, it's kind of a scary time already. And, and they still didn't back down, but after some conversation and, you know, have, you know, talk, just, just being kind and being reasonable, they said, okay, we'll stop. 
They said, we're going to be back on the weekend, but we're going to stop right now. <laughs> and they stopped. Right. And that's a scary thing to walk up to a group of tatted people on the corner, you know, <laughs> all racist, and ask them to stop shooting off bombs. Yeah. One little lady. But she did it. So, I, Kendall, your point is right. People need to come, come out and talk. And Cor Corky, my guy Corky Traxman Straw, was saying the same thing. Yeah. Not in this nicer way we saying it, but he was saying the same thing. We can't be scared. I know. It's hard not to, though, sometimes. But I, I, I'll tell you what, I have, a, I have a limit. You know, if I see little kids doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing, I often do say, I, I'm often that mom, you know, that says, hey, 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 don't do that. Mm -hmm. Hey, hey, why are you grabbing her like that? Hey, right. hey, stop that. Why, why so I, yeah, rock. Stop that. I'm, I'm that person. <laughs> but a lot of times I want to say, hey, hey, hey. Put, your, put your pants up, you know, but, but depending on the age, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, it's, it's tough, but I, I think Corky has a point. And I think Kendall has a point. What's up, Maria? Um, and Trenton, thank you for watching. I think we can't, we got to overcome our fear. Because if it's happening in our communities and it's happening with the kids or the adults that we see, you know, when when do we speak up? We don't speak up, then people call the police. That's the natural thing. Right. Yeah. And these kids were smoking weed in the back of my house in the alley, which is really bad because all the houses look down on the alley and there's all these people, many seniors who are about to call the police. I knew they were on this group of black kids. This was a couple years ago, and I went out because I could see him from my back window, and I said, guys, this is not a good idea. You know, and they were all blowed by that time. Like, eight black guys and one white girl. I was like, this is not a good scenario for you. And they looked at me like I had three heads. And I said, dude, I'm trying to tell you, well, not a good idea. I think you should move your party. Yeah. All right, okay, okay. And they reluctantly got up and left. Was I scared when I did that? Yeah, they saw where I lived. I just walked out of my back door. Mm -hmm. You know, we all think about our fears, but and I'm and I'm 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 kind of scary, you know. But I was like, well, this ain't happening in my back. You know, I'm, I overcame it long enough to get out there and nerves were all tied up afterward. But we got to do that. Yeah, that's one solution. Lauren, what you doing? You typing? <laughs> I'm listening and learning from the both of you, but my perspective on the police, I am definitely one of, I'm an anti-police person. I have lots of friends who are police. Any black police officer I know, I am uh, generally upset with because mm -hmm. when I think of the fact there was a black guy who looked at George Floyd be killed by this white guy the symbol of the knee on his neck and no black guy says, oh, by the way, he's disrespecting me while he's mm -hmm. doing that. There are hundreds of black ch police chiefs in this country. There's a bunch mm -hmm. of them in the small towns, in the big towns. Toronto's just retired. I mean, he just quit or whatever. There's so many here, you know, just so many places. And the fact that there is not a cohesive group of black police officers who do not denounce this type of activity, but stand behind that badge, that's a disconnect yeah. to your own community. You don't even know or respect who you are. I agree. So I, agree. I don't have any respect for any of the police officers who I know, who I'm actually friends with. Um, uh -oh. 
She's starting very disturbing. It's disturbing to me that they don't have a voice. And I've got some police officer friends who are in high places and CPD, the state police. I haven't heard a word from these people. Some of them retired. They're so afraid of their pensions. They're so afraid of the point as a black human being in this country. Are you going to stand for something? Yeah. What are you going to stand for? Well, well, now's the time. Yeah, if you don't stand for someone right now, denounce this right now as a group, they don't have a cohesive group that will come together. There used to be this thing called a guy named um, Buzz, of course, I forget his last name now, who headed the African Americans Patrolmen's League. Okay. 50, 60 years old now. I don't know if it's still going on. I haven't heard a word from any of these people. They're clearly now standing behind the police board or whatever. It's just a tragedy to me. So I'm not, a, you know, clearly you want you know, the police to protect you. And I'm sure they will. I hope they will. But the fact that black police officers are not standing up for our people, for their own people, their own family, I just hope that no one doesn't realize that their mother is uh, related to them and they're not killed down the street or their son or their daughter. If they're not thinking about it that way, then there's no hope. You know, the police officers, the police should be defunded across the board. If you have a bunch of black people in these the heads of these organizations and they don't even think about their own family members being killed by one of their own, you know, police officers. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of done with them. They could, they could go. Ooh, she's done. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we don't want to be totally done. We do, you know, this, this we'll, we'll, we're going to have some police on the show. We can talk about it that way. So listen, we, we talked a lot about, you know, what the problem is, what, what our suggestions are. I see a lot of them rolling across. I appreciate you guys who are watching. Sean, Sean Williams, thank you so much. Stop using that language. Yeah, she, she, she's helping Janice Griffin. Um, we do have a lot of powerful people in our community. I think now is the time to rally behind them. If you feel like you need a voice, you know, gravitate to the one that, that uh, is speaking to you and support that. Um, you know, I, I, I think that um, there's a lot of solutions and one of those is to use house music. This is what this show is about. Uh, house music is about love. It's about community. It's about having 50,000 people in the same space. It's not having, you know, so we know, we know how to do this. We know how to bring people together. Um, how do we harness, how, how do we harness that energy, you know, towards this movement? And Lady D, I, you know, um, I want to ask you that question because you've been in this game 25 years, uh, you started spinning 1995, am I right? That's right. Uh, and that is uh, that's a, that's a that's that's a good piece of change. Uh, what was we could talk about what was happening then, but you know, I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on you know what's what what was happening then, what's happening now. You know, how do we tie this all together? Sure. Um, so I think I think what I started noticing in the 90s, the early 90s was um, how house music had shifted from South Side to the North Side and how clubs had, had begun to embrace house music but had not begun to really embrace Black people. And so for me, going to clubs was kind of an act of resistance because I was there in the 90s to show that Black people enjoy house music, Black people should be able to go into the club and have a good time and be themselves and be free 
And this is not something exclusive or reserved just for certain people. So for me, being in the club at that time when there weren't a lot of black people around, when they were actively um, denying entry to, to too many black people coming into the club, um, I was there to really just to be a black face in the club. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I often thought about it then. I hated sometimes being the person that was, you know, I mean, walked into the club easily because of relationships that I had and new people or whatever. Um, you know, sometimes I'd actively, you know, try to advocate on behalf of some people, you know, pull more people in. Um, but it was, I would say, you know, like a club like Shelter it was a very diverse club. You would see a lot of other people, um, but they did have a door policy that, you know, once they had enough, you know, faces of color, they just, you know, that was it. Like they kind of cut it off for the night. So you really had to know somebody to be in there. Um, so it was, it was like that in the clubbing districts around town. You know, a lot of well-meaning people would come to the club, stand out there for an hour, or, you know, the door man would just not let them in. After about an hour, hour and a half, people are going to go home. They're going to turn around and go home. And they might try it again another time. If that happens again, they know, what's, they know what, what the deal is. They know what's up. So they're not coming back. So um, I think that that played a part in, you know, house music uh, really sort of, of, or, of, you know, a lot of our audience for house music by not really having a lot of outlets or a lot of different places to go um, where they could go, you know, the music was changing. So it was becoming more hip hop and more commercial and more R&B. And so, um, so not to say that they stopped loving house music, they just stopped participating in what right. was what was happening around town. So, um, so I think, you know, from that grew a tight community of the people, a lot of the black people, I mean, it was a diverse crowd still for sure, but you know, I could look around and see, you know, Diz, Derek Carter, Spencer Kinsey, you know, um, you know, Heather Collette, you know, uh, Javon Jackson, Mel Hammond, you know, it was just a, a community of people um, Mark Grant, you know, it was a lot of people who were there kind of keeping the thing together. Gene Ferris, like, who were doing music, making music, playing music, throwing parties, um, making sure that there was, you know, a life still in the house music community. And we used to, I mean, we sort of had a joke. We would be like, yeah, we the last of the Moniquins, you know, because we was, it was the black people who were, you know, we look around at each other. And we knew we had each other um, and in those moments because, you know, there weren't that many of us. It wasn't, it wasn't just like when we came up, when I would go to Mendel and it was 2,000, 4,000 of us, you know, all around dancing. Um, it was, you know, a smattering of us. And so, um, so it was kind of nice when, you know, at the, at the mid-2000s, late-2000s, when you started seeing it started to really grow again. Um, with, you know, when Chosen Few started getting bigger and um, growing and they moved from behind the museum to the Grove and then to, you know, Hayes Drive. And, and so when people started saying like, dang, we love house, you know, what happened to house or, or oh, I always been house, you know, whatever your case may be. Um, a lot of, a lot of people weren't there in the beginning. So, um, or when I was, when I started in the beginning. Uh, obviously, I started 
listening to house music in 81 too, like everybody else when I was a teenager. But, um, but you know, when I started playing in 95, you know, I had been going to clubs, uh, you know, on the north side primarily, and you know, there weren't there weren't there weren't that many of us. Yeah. So it was, you yeah, know, you're, you're bringing up a really good point, and it's not something we talk about with the third generation of house music. And if you're just watching us, we're talking to DJ Lady D in the house, you know, Super Jane celebrating 25 years in the game. Um, and, and it was a different era. And, and I was definitely DJing, you know, and that, that period had a lot of residencies. But you were right. Like, the, the residencies that I had, Wicker Park, you know, Northside, um, I, I didn't do, I did not have one black club residency. They were all, the only, the only ones that I had that were like that were lesbian bars or, you know, they were very sort of niche um, and we were playing house music there, but it wasn't like, you know, what we see at Chosen Few um, and, and a few years later. So th there was something that kind of died that had to be resurrected during that period, uh, those 90s. And, and it's reflective in the music, if you notice. Like when people talk about classic house, they tend to go to the 80s and not the 90s. <laughs> you ever notice that? Yeah. yeah. 25 years ago, it could be considered classic house music. You know, I, I, I have a whole, you know, tons of records from that era that I used to spin at CK's and Auggie's and Paris Dance and those girls' clubs and, you know, the other ones, the, uh, the Wicker Park, the Red Dog, the, uh, you know, all the places at Avalon, all those places. Exactly. So some, some, because definitely for my audience, some of my, some of my audience classics, a lot of the people that love house, they would yeah. not know those songs. They wouldn't know those songs at all. At all. No. These are, these are underground house yeah. classics, you know, like that would yeah. make that would make, you know, the majority of my audience like yeah. to go up. Okay. They would go up for these songs. Yeah. 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 So it's interesting. I, I think we we need to have a nineties party. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because it, it is it's like classics now. Uh, it's really, hey, Dion Hunter, he's saying, what do we do about it now? I don't know which one we're talking about, but, uh, lots, uh, Janice says, they only openly, they only openly allow blacks when the club was losing revenue. And then he came there say, race, you ain't said nothing wrong, Janice, because honestly, that's how I got one of those jobs that I just described, but I'm not going to tell you which one. They were losing revenue in this place that had previously been shady towards black people. Said, "Let's let's let's give this a go," uh, and then becomes investment part of it. So it's wow. We don't have time for all of this, <laughs> Lady D. You started something, right? I, I can yes. And Preston, Preston has a good point. Ninety-five till now. <laughs> you know, otherwise I was just a revenue music. Say that again. <laughs> uh, yeah. I feel you. Okay, well, we got, we, we have so much to talk about. I can't hear you, Lady D. Oh, I was just looking at some of the comments, and they were saying, "Yeah, they always go to the oh, 90s. Yeah. So, yeah, and I'm like, "There's a there's a party called Strictly '90s that uh, Gant Man, yeah. and John Simmons, and Zarina do, and you know that's that's our that's our stuff. But is it over? Is I love it. Have we reached the limit? Is it is is it ten o'clock? Almost. Okay. So uh, I want to. I, I just want to. Uh, I want to um, just 
with the last few minutes that we have, we haven't talked about COVID at all. And, you know, this is, uh, it, it, my, my fever posted this, someone else posted it, I think John uh, posted this the other day, like, is COVID gone? People, this, it has not gone away. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a horrifying situation and it has been eclipsed by what we've seen. But an eclipse does not mean that suddenly the sun is gone, you know, or the moon is gone. It's just hiding. It's just hiding behind something else that has taken prominence. So no, it has not gone away. We're hoping, I'm hoping, as a public health person, that we, we may see a, a, a lessening of its effect that like a seasonal flu, less people will get infected and maybe it will go away. I'm hoping that, you know, that's a lot of the scientists are saying that's not gonna happen. And in many states, it's still rising. We've seen a decrease in Illinois. All the measurable factors have allowed us to, to move towards an opening, but it hasn't gone away. And it has taken the life of, of people in my family, uh, people in Lady D's family. Um, and I just wanna, I wanna say, uh, I'm sorry for your loss, Lady D. And if there's anything, you know, that we can do um, to, to just honor your brother, Gregory, um, you know, we wanna do that as a community because that, that's serious. And, and we need to take this seriously, people. It's not gone away. No, it's not gone away. Um, you know, really, uh, I, I read a thing today in Bloomberg, um, there's actually been a spike. There's gonna be a second wave. Uh, even as things are reopening right now, uh, over 100,000 new cases reported. Uh, yes you know, 416,000 uh, total deaths. So um, we are all, I, I remember how brave we felt in March uh, because the, on the timeline, it seemed like people were dropping like flies. Like every other day I was reading about somebody, somebody's law. Yeah. And um, until it comes, until it comes to you, you sort of, you sort of don't know what what that's like, um, and so so when we lost my brother Gregory, you know it was it was so um, it was so surreal because uh, one minute you know I'm on the phone with him, he's saying, "Oh, I don't feel too good. I went to the hospital," and this is you know mid March, April second, he was gone. So. It's and you know and there's nobody around and they can't talk to you um, because they're in isolation. So you think of it as you know probably a really lonely way to to, to leave this place. Um, but I have to say ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? So you come here alone, you leave here alone, and there's nothing you can do about that. You don't know when when it's going to happen. So um, if anything, it just taught me to be more vigilant and uh, and to impress upon everybody around me and, and to try to save themselves and to, for me to do as much as I could to help save them as well. Like um, we, we started a mask company because we wanted everybody to have masks around us. And so we, because we had a way to get a great supply of them, mm -hmm. um, we decided, you know, well, if we can, if we can sell, you know, um, reusable masks at a very, very, uh, you know, constructive price, then we could be helping as much as we can. So, mm -hmm. so 
Protective Mask Depot, sorry, my little shameless plug, but protectivemaskdepot.com, um, if anybody needs masks, we have them very reasonably priced. Mm -hmm. So, um, so if, you know, masks- I'm getting some of those masks. Yes. <laughs> right on. <laughs> you know what? Well, masks. Yeah, respirators, the mask is, is just a great way to slow the communication and reduce your infection rates. And so, it, why not wear masks? You know, why not? They're, and these, the ones that are very lightweight, they're, they're great quality. So, um, so yeah, if anybody needs some, this is, this is what I can do to help. I appreciate that. And thank you for sharing. Um, it's not easy to talk about this. There's still a stigma around COVID. Um, kind of reminds me of the early days of HIV where people don't want to talk about it if they had it. But, you know, uh, we've had some losses like your brother, like my cousin, uh, rest in peace, Denise, and, and other folks who, who we know. Uh, and I just, um, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry that that happened. Um, so, so our condolences are with people are, are pouring in their condolences as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I also wanted to just make a note that uh, Craig Loftus lost his mom this week. Um, and uh, Craig is, you know, one of my buds. And, you know, we, we've been in this game together. We started at the exact same time, you know, with spinning music and everything. And so, you know, he's one of my buds. And I, and I, and I knew his mom very well. His mom was a rock star she her name was penny she was and she she and she had all the snazz and jazz and everything that goes along with that name miss penny loftus penny lee loftus so you know we want to send our love to mr craig loftus uh penny we're going to miss you she uh, i mentioned this on my page but she was uh around at a time when most of our parents were kicking us to the street she she had the kind of house where she's like you she ain't gonna you can always come there and we spend many days and nights now. that's where i learned to dj you know in her basement um so so rest in peace penny loftus i might do a little live set and do a little tribute to penny tribute to gregory tribute to denise um so stay tuned after the show i want to uh take us out though by saying there's a lot that we all can do. And if you had to sum it up, Lady D, as to what you feel like is a positive message and something that people could be doing in this very turbulent time to, for themselves and for their communities, what would that be? And Lauren, I would like to hear you, you too. Lady D? Sure. Um, so, you know, after the first nights of protests, riots, and looting, um, I woke up invigorated. I woke up feeling challenged, like I needed to rise to the occasion. Um, I felt optimistic about it in some weird way, if you know, if I may, because I thought, oh, when I when I saw who was out there uh, and who was reacting, um, even if it's even if you don't really understand your reaction, but you felt compelled to do things. I saw it being sort of a rainbow coalition, if you will, of a lot of different people involved. And so, I don't know, I just woke up feeling like, okay, this ain't, this ain't nothing. This ain't, you know, I, I think we've seen worse. I think we've seen when whole, you know, blocks were destroyed by fire. And um, I just thought a little broken glass is not going to hurt anybody. I, we got up and we got our brooms and, you know, went, went out uh, into Bronzeville and you know, 
the the most amazing thing was that most of the work had already been done. People had already been out there and cleaned up the mess. And that's so great. Yeah, and so um, and so I had to find some other ways that I could give, and so. I work with a, a company called Collaboration uh, Organization, the um, Theater for Social Change, and um, they elevate black and brown voices in theater, which Chicago so desperately needs. And I, I, I got on uh, the phone with them and I said, we need to do something as an organization. So we have some uh, community connections in Inglewood, and we went to an organization at uh, 60th and Halsted and, and helped them uh, box up uh, materials for, for families in need. So people dropping off stuff all day long and, you know, we're putting things in boxes you know, from baby um, supplies, diapers, food, formula, mm -hmm. to, you know, toiletries, to just food and groceries for people to have. So, um, and that's still going on. So I'm going back again this week. I'm going, you know, went last week, going back again this week. So whatever you can do, do. You know, that's that's my message. I'm doing a, um, a fundraiser this Saturday night for the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Um, so that helps that organization helps uh, people who have been detained or, um, you know, arrested and with um, raising their bond funds. And a lot of people have been detained. There have been a lot more arrests because of the protest, because they want to silence people's voices and people's right to protest and um and so a lot of people are brought in you know um not necessarily just because there's going to be some money from it so so the bond fund really helps people who've been detained um and and, and you know unnecessarily so uh on saturday night having a little party distantdisco.com it starts at 9 30 goes till two i get to do an extended set you know so that's going to be kind of fun um you know we sent out disco lights to the first, you know, hundred people that have responded. You got yours. I got mine. Thank okay. you. Excellent. So, so I got it today. I was like, I got my disco light. Yeah, and it's Lauren. It's uh, uh, Oh, you you missed out, Lauren. That's okay. Listen, you are lighting in your in your house right now, so you got like this little purple light behind you. Like all your light on and off. You got to do your own thing. <laughs> Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so if anybody wants to pop into it, Rick says she's super excited for it. All right, Amy. Right on. Thank you. Yeah, and that's a, another way to to, uh, to to give back, actually, and to help. So for, uh, for me, it's about, you know, continuing to play the music, to use my platform in ways in which I can, and to actually get out there and help people with my physical body, because I am able all right uh we got to put our bodies in it and i'm making a commitment to do that as well i'm a little scared of the COVID. hannah kate hannah said dj uh vd girl said she got hers yeah um did we talk about good girls before you go absolutely yes yes please good do girls. so good girls uh good girls is uh is my way of bringing of balancing the musical scales okay so it's a, it's a, we all know that you know there are a lot of djs in the world a lot of them are men and i wanted to do something that helped elevate a lot of us uh women players and and that's women with an x so that means you know um gender non-conforming non-binary uh and you know all women players because there's a lot of us 
and we sometimes don't get that visibility or get the looks on the different lineups and whatnot. So Good Girls is a way to balance out these musical scales, balance out these musical lineups, and to have some events. And so my girls, my core, you know, of the Good Girls is voila, uh, the impress of house lady Laura Branch and <laughs> and I know and our you know our our liege uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. Hannah Kate the girl <laughs> so, and so and we had started doing doing these parties you know to bring some awareness to it and um, I was working with um, Tamara Allen and Rocio Garcia and so we were kind of pulling all of our people together to do these events at Arbea and we had started doing a monthly and that took off in February and March and then we were heading into April when COVID hit so we're going to take it online really soon and um, we'll be having some, some promo stuff out there really soon for that um, but the, the goal eventually is to do an all women focused um you know festival and we're gonna make that happen so right that's right yeah. hey melody Diggs, you're gonna be part of that too so yeah there you go yes um so yeah i i'm really looking forward to it uh dj lady d i can't thank you enough for all you do for our community you are the quintessential role model she does music she does Columbia College where she manages events and she's a liaison for the center. You do a lot of stuff. Okay, let's, let's keep with that. Um, and, you know, really, really, really inspirational um, person. And I just, I'm so glad that you're in my life. And, uh, and I'm glad that you are part of this wonderful house music community. You're, you're such a unique and beautiful spirit. So thank you, thank you, Aaron. Did you want? To, of course. Did you want to say anything before we sign off? Well, I have to honor two people who have passed away from COVID, uh, who are very special to me. Yes, uh, Hecky Powell, who was very yes. influential in the city of Evanston. We are uh, working on a project together right now, using reparations money uh -huh. that the city of Evanston has created to teach black history to kids. That was going to be our starter program. Mm -hmm. We're still gonna make that happen. Secondly, one of the major thought leaders here in the city of Chicago, has been around for 60 years teaching, educating uh, thousands of black people uh, on black history, giving oh, yes. these from there, et cetera. Dr. Conrad Wall, a very, very influential person in my life. So I have to give them much praise, certainly, Lady D, I, I'm so sorry about your brother, and of course, sorry about uh, Craig's mom. It's a tragic time, but this is a time for us to come together. Music helps us do that. Talking about music, playing music, hearing music makes us all feel better, makes us fight better, makes us fight together, unifies. And I just love what both of you all do with your work, and I thank you all for it. Thank you, thank you, Lauren. And thank you all for watching. Uh, this is Vintage House. We will be back next week. Um, I'm not exactly sure who's going to be. On. We will keep you posted on that. And, you know, if you have an opportunity, please share the video. We just want to bring more and more people to the conversation. For those of you tonight, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll be back next week with Kevin, Megan McFall, and, and whoever he, he brings on. If you want to be uh, on the show, if you want to chime in, let me know. Hit me up. Um, I think that's it. Anything else, ladies? No, just that I love you both. 
And thank you so much. Love you guys. Love you too. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Finders Plus Real Estate is a proud sponsor of the Vintage House Show. Finders Plus Real Estate is a full-service real estate brokerage specializing in the Chicagoland communities. Please find us at findersplus.com. Listen to Vintage House on Wednesdays at 10 p.m. on WNUR 89.3 FM, WNUR.org, Facebook Live, and VintageHouseShow.com.